Good morning. Today I will be speaking on questions related to the International Court of, Ju of Justice and the use of force by states. Let me begin by saying that the prohibition against the use of force contained in Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the Charter of the United Nations is, as we all know, a cornerstone of the po post-war legal order and ranks as one of the most fundamental rules of contemporary international law. Whereas claims involving violations of the prohibition uh, raise delicate political questions, uh, the lawfulness or otherwise of interstate violence is by no means beyond judicial uh, scrutiny. Through an analysis of the jurisprudence of the International Court of Justice, this paper, my lecture, examines among uh, uh, examines uh, the International Court of Justice contribution to the definition of the regime applicable to the use of force among states. In so doing, it focuses in particular on the conditions on which uh, self-defense may be legitimately restored to and, to and on the challenges posed by armed attacks by non-state actors with regard to a set of rules originally conceived to play at the interstate level. Uh, I will want uh, uh, to provide also an introduction uh, on these matters. As we may recall, despite the often highly political nature of interstate disputes concerning the use of force and self-defense, states have shown, with the exception of some remarkable examples, no general or principled reluctance to submit cases on such uh, controversial subject matter to the International Court of Justice. Moreover, the court has neither traditionally nor in its more recent jurisprudence shied away from pronouncing on disputes involving the legal rules governing the use of force by states. As the court found in its advisory opinion on the legality of the threat or use of force of nuclear weapons, uh, it cannot accept that it has no jurisdiction because of the political character of the question posed. The court considers that the fact that the legal question also has political aspects, and I quote, does not suffice to deprive it of its character as a legal question and to deprive the court of the competence expressly conferred on it by states, by the statute. The court cannot refuse to admit the legal character of a question which invites it to discharge an essentially judicial task. Consequently, over the course of the court's 60-year history, a significant body of jurisprudence has emerged on the issues of state responsibility and the use of force. These cases stretch from the court's first judgment in uh, uh, 1949, in the Corfu Channel case, all the way up to the court's most recent judgment in the Bosnia-Serbia case in late February 2007. I will begin my uh, discussion of the jurisprudence by examining the court's Corfu Channel case. I will then discuss the Nicaragua case of, 18, uh, of 1986, perhaps the court's most influence, influential judgment relating to the use of force. While the Corfu Channel case while in the Corfu Channel case, the court underlined the absolute scope of the prohibition against the use of force 
in the Nicaragua case, the court articulated a narrow understanding of when an armed attack triggers the right of self-defense. I will then discuss the oil platforms case, the wall advisory opinion, the Congo-Uganda case, and the Bosnia genocide case, with a focus on how these judgments remain faithful to or depart from the court's Nicaragua president, and of course, I will also want to touch upon how the International Law Commission's draft articles on state responsibility have incorporated various aspects of these judgments on the use of force and self-defense. So let us start with the Corfu Channel case. It's a case that uh, uh, was the very first judgment to be handed down by the International Court of Justice, and it has exerted a lasting influence on the development of the law relating to the use of force and state responsibility. This case arose out of an incident on October the 22nd, 1946, in which two British warships struck recently laid mines in the previously swept minefield of the Corfu Channel between Albania and Greece. The, the, the mines badly damaged the ships, killed 44 officers and injured 42 others. The British warships had been in the channel not only for the purposes of navigation, but also to test Albania's claim that it controlled the passage of shipping through its territorial waters in the channel. A UN Security Council resolution of April 1947 recommended that Albania and the United Kingdom refer their dispute to the International Court of Justice, and both parties accepted this resolution. In its uh, 49 judgment, the court could not fully establish who had laid the mines, but it nonetheless found sufficient evidence to hold that Albania was responsible for the explosions and therefore obliged to compensate the United Kingdom. A committee of naval officers provided the court with an expert opinion on certain factual issues, including a determination that the amount claimed by the United Kingdom, well over 800,000 pounds, constituted a fair and accurate estimate of the damage sustained. The court determined that the Albanian government most likely had knowledge uh, of the mine lying and therefore had an obligation to warn the approaching British warships of this imminent danger. The court also held that the passage of the British warships through the Corfu Channel did not violate Albanian sovereignty. The court, however, unanimously held that the British minesweeping activities did violate Albania's sovereignty, and the court found that its declaration to that effect constituted appropriate satisfaction. The declaration has been profusely quoted in other International Court of Justice judgments and in academic publications. And this is the text. I quote, the court can only regard the alleged right of intervention as a manifestation of a policy of force, such as has in the past given rise to most serious abuse, abuses and such as cannot, whatever be the present, inter the, the present state of international organization, find a place in international 
law. End of the quote. Following the court's judgment, Albania did not pay reparations to the United Kingdom and the two states severed diplomatic relations until 1991, when they finally set the outstanding claim. In discussing the obligations incumbent upon the Albanian government, it is significant that the court based Albania's obligations on certain general and well-recognized principles, namely elementary considerations of humanity even more exacting in peace than in war, the principle of the freedom of maritime communication, and every state's obligation not to allow knowingly its territory to be used for acts contrary to the rights of other states. End of the quote. The court did not simply base Albania's responsibility in maritime principles. Instead, as I have already mentioned before, the court formulated a much broader basis for responsibility grounded also in elementary considerations of humanity and the fact that every, every state's obligation not to allow knowingly its territory to be used for acts contrary to the rights of other states. The latter principle has provided the basis for the development of a general theory of delictual liability in international law. This judgment thereby lies the foundation for the existence of, in international law of a general rule to the effect that every state is obliged to use due diligence to prevent harm to other states arising from activities within its territory of which it has knowledge. This obligation has become a founding principle of, interna of international environmental law, and it has been incorporated into the Stockholm Declaration, a fundamental document in the field of international environmental law. It should be noted that unlike the Corfu Channel case, the International Law Commission's draft articles on the responsibility of states for internationally wrongful acts distinguishes between primary and secondary rules of state responsibility. Over the course of its consideration of the topic of state responsibility, the ILC developed an important distinction between primary rules and secondary rules. Primary rules are the substantive rules of customary and conventional international law. Secondary rules are the general conditions in international law under which the state is responsible for wrongful actions or omissions, or, or omissions and the legal consequences which flow therefrom. By contrast, in the Corfu Channel case, the court considered as a whole the primary issue of the nature of Albania's obligation and the secondary question of whether Albania was in breach of such obligations. Despite the judgment's lack of differentiation between primary and secondary rules, it does appear to have been generally accepted that there was a kind of two-step process, that knowledge gave rise to duties or obligations, and that it was the breach of those duties that gave rise to responsibility. Now, let's introduce this landmark decision of the court, the Nicaragua case. Of course, we will have to move forward almost four decades in the court's jurisprudence to this seminal Nicaragua case of 1986. 
In Nicaragua, state responsibility and the use of force were salient issues because Nicaragua attributed responsibility to the United States for the activities of the Contras. These activities included the kidnapping, assassination, torture, rape, and killing of prisoners and civilians in Nicaragua. U.S. opposition to the Sandinista-dominated Nicaragua, Nicaraguan government had developed in the late 1970s because of the Nicaraguan government's increasing stronger links with Cuba and the Soviet Union. The orientation of its domestic policies and its alleged support for insurgent movements in El Salvador and other Central American states. In 1981, the United States canceled its Nicaraguan aid program and began covertly backing the Contras, the, the Nicaraguan opponents of the Sandinista government. The United States provided political backing, financial support, training, and military equipment ostensibly to inhibit the flow of material support from Nicaragua to the insurgents in El Salvador. But the United States apparently also acted with the aim of bringing pressure on the Nicaraguan government to change its domestic and foreign policies fundamentally. In 1983 and, 18, and 1984, the United States also began directly to support the Contras by mining several Nicaraguan harbors and attacking Nicaragua's ports, facilities, and oil depots. The Nicaragua case is, in part, highly significant for our purposes because of its holding on self-defense. The court noted that armed attacks by non-state actors could, in principle, trigger the right to self-defense, but only if the non-state conduct could be imputed to another state. The court thus determined that such attribution requires the effective control of the non-state operations by other states. So this holding was controversial at the time and may remain so today. It was in line with the general hostility with which the international community responded to assertions by Israel or South Africa that cross-border incursions in pursuit of terrorists or insurgents could come within the scope of Article 51 of the Charter. In its judgment, it was said that the court does not believe that the concept of armed attack includes not only acts by armed bands where such acts occur on significant scale, but also assistance to re rebels in the form of provision of weapons or logistical or other support. Such assistance may be regarded as a threat or use of force or amount to intervention in the internal or external affairs of other states. On the issue of attribution, the court accordingly examined whether or not the relationship of the contrast to the United States government was so much one of dependence on the one side and control on the other that it would be right to equate the contrast for legal purposes with an organ of the United States government or as acting on behalf of that government. The court found that despite the contrast dependency on the support provided to them by the United States, there was no clear evidence that the United States exercised such a degree of control 
that the Contras acted on behalf of the United States. While the evidence indicated that the U.S. assistance to the Contras was crucial to the pursuit of their activities, it was, however, insufficient to demonstrate their complete dependence on the United States aid. Even though the court found that the Contras were completely dependent on the U.S. in the initial years of the U.S. assistance to them, the court lacked adequate evidence showing that the United States made use of the potential for control inherent in that dependence or that the contra force may be equated for legal purposes with the force of the United States. The court determined that the activities of the contras could not be attributed to the United States on the basis of the available evidence, even though U.S. participation may have been preponderant or decisive in the financing, organizing, supplying, and equipping of the Contras. The court found that general control by the U.S. over the Contras did not give rise to legal responsibility for the acts of the Contras absent evidence that the United States directed or enforced the alleged violations of human rights and humanitarian law. The court thus drew a distinction between general control of the military and paramilitary operations, which would, would not give rise to legal responsibility, and the effective control of the operations, which would, would give rise to liability. The ILC, the International uh, Law Commission, uh, uh, commenting on the military and paramilitary case, accordingly note that the court used the notion of control to analyze whether the conduct of the contrast was attributable to the United States. This International Law Commission's uh, draft articles on state responsibility generally show close adherence to the court's holding on attribution in the Nicaragua case. Draft, art draft Article 8 concerns conduct directed or controlled by a state and sets for forth the rule that the conduct of a person or groups of, group of persons shall be considered an act of state under international law if the person or group of persons is in fact acting on the instructions of or under direction or control of that state in carrying out the conduct. According to the ILC commentaries, draft article 8 addresses two different situations. The first concerns private action based on instructions from the state, such as when states recruit or instigate private entities which act as auxiliaries and remain outside of the state structure. The second situation concerns uh, private action under the state's direction or control. In the latter situation, such conduct will be attributable to the state only if it is directed or controlled uh, the, the specific operation and the conduct complained of was an integral part of that operation. However, this principle does not extend to conduct which was only incidentally or peripherally associated with an operation and which escaped from the state's direction or control. Finally, the International Law Commission commentaries stress the necessity of examining the link 
between the private actor and the state. Let me now go to a third case, the so-called oil platform case. This case of 2003, far more recent, is important for our purposes in part because the court, the court strayed somewhat from its Nicaragua precedent. The oil platforms case uh, concerned a series of retaliatory attacks by the US Navy on Iranian oil platforms in the Persian Gulf in uh, 1987 and 1988. This dispute between Iran and the United States arose out of the 1980 uh, to 1988 tanker war between Iran and Iraq. Iraq had attacked oil tankers traveling to and from Iranian ports, and Iran had retaliated by attacking and mining neutral flagships traveling to and from ports in Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. This case came out of two incidents, the first being in 1987, when a missile hit a Kuwait tanker, which had been re-flagged to the United States. The US subsequently asserted that Iran oil platforms had served as the uh, staging grounds for the, attack, for the attacks by Iranian forces. Three days later, the United States attacked and destroyed two Iranian offshore oil production installations. Later, in 1988, after a U.S. Uh, frigate attack uh, st uh, struck a mine near Bahrain, the United States responded by attacking and destroying platforms of the National Iranian Oil Company. In its ruling in the, on this case, the court held that although the U.S. attacks constituted unlawful uses of force, they did not violate the 1955 Treaty of Amity, Economic Relations, and Consular Relations between the U.S. and Iran because the attacks did not adversely affect freedom of commerce between the parties. It must be remembered that the court's main task in this case was to determine whether the U.S. attacks violated its obligations under Article 10 of the Amity Treaty, according to which there shall be freedom of commerce and navigation between the territories of the two parties. The court, however, decided first to examine whether the U.S. measures were necessary to protect its essential security interests under Article 20 of the treaty. The court justified this approach by virtue of the fact that the U.S. had relied on Article 20 as determinative of whether it had breached obligations under Article 10. The court found that the U.S. had not provided convincing evidence that the 1987 attack was attributable to Iran. The court also found that the 1988 attack did not amount to an armed attack by Iran on the United States, which could justify resort by the United States to self-defense. Additionally, the evidence of Iran's responsibility for the 1988 attack was inconclusive. Thus, the court was not satisfied that the U.S. Uh, that the U.S. attacks were necessarily to were necessary to respond to the incidents that they were a proportionate use of force in self-defense.
the court concluded that the U.S. attacks were not justified under Article 20 of the treaty as necessary to protect the essential security interest of the United States and that the U.S. attacks did not fall with, within the ambit of measures contemplated by that provision. Though so the attacks were not justified under Article 20, they still did not violate Article 10. The explanation given by the court was that the U.S. attacks did not infringe upon the freedom of commerce because the oil platforms target, target in 1987 were inoperative and under repair, and the U.S. embargo on Iranian oil was in place when the U.S. attacked the other oil platforms in 1988. A, distinct, a distinctive feature of this case is the discrepancy between the dispute as presented by the parties to the court and the grounds upon which the court chose to resolve the dispute. Although the parties had argued about whether or not the U.S. had violated its international responsibility under the Iran-United States Treaty of Amity of 1955, and the court jurisdiction rested on Article 20 of the Amity Treaty, the court judged the case on the basis of the law governing the use of force and self-defense. The court, in fact, made no reference to the law on state responsibility or the International Law Commission's work on this topic. Consequently, the oil platforms case will be remembered not for what it was, a case on international responsibility, but for what it was not and has become a case on the use of force and self defense. Increasingly, the court's focus on self-defense represented a, a departure from its own precedent in the Nicaragua case. In the Nicaragua case, the sequence of the court's analysis differed significantly from that of the oil platforms case. In Nicaragua, the court decided first to assess whether the United States had violated its obligations under the 1955 U.S.-Nicaragua Treaty of Amity. Then, in so far as the actions of the United States appeared to violate relevant rules of law, the court would determine whether any, circum any circumstances excluded unlawfulness. In addition, in Nicaragua, the court rejected the conflation of self-defense and measures necessary for the protection of security interests. The court determined that while a measure taken in self-defense would certainly constitute a measure necessary to protect security interests, a, measures, a, a measure can be necessary to protect security interest without meeting the conditions of self-defense. Thus, in oil platforms, the court departed from its Nicaragua precedent by treating as interchangeable the concepts of self-defense and measures necessary to protect essential security interests. In addition, the court departed from Nicaragua by analyzing the issue of self-defense before determining whether the U.S. had violated Article 10 of the Amity Treaty. The court argued that the application of the 1955 Amity Treaty involves the principle of the prohibition in international law of the use of force and the qualification to it constituted by the right of self-defense. On the basis of the treaty, 
a party may be justified in, in taking certain measures which it considers necessary for the protection of its essential security interests. The question whether the measures were necessary overlaps with their validity as acts of self-defense. The criteria of necessity and proportionality must be observed is a measure if a measure is to be qualified as self-defense. The court concluded that the U.S. action against Iran oil platforms cannot be justified as being measures necessary to protect the essential security interests of the U.S. since those actions constituted recourse to armed force not qualifying under international law on the question as acts of self-defense. Notice must be taken of an important similarity between the Nicaragua case and the oil platforms case. In both cases, a source of jurisdiction for the court was a 1955 Treaty of Amity, in the case of Iran, and the 1956 Treaty of Friendship in the case of Nicaragua, probably concluded at a time when the U.S. was inclined to rely on these sort of treaties to develop its economic interests and also its trade and navigational uh, perspectives all over the world. Paradoxically, friendship and amity are nowadays no longer the main feature in U.S. relations with those two countries. One scholar provides the following insight assessment of the court's use of trade treaties to adjudicate the proper use of force. It says, at the moment in time in which the U.S. possesses unparalleled military power, there clearly is no balance of power in the military area. Through the creative use of economic treaties, an arena where there exists a greater sense of multipolarity, bilateral trade treaties are being employed through the International Court of Justice to generate legal norms of restraint on U.S. military sovereignty. Economic legal power is being employed to uh, cabin military use, the doctrine of realism reversed. Thus, in this case, the court appears to have aggressively pursued a role for international law in the context of world politics. Perhaps the 2003 judgment in part reflects a legal response to the U.S. position on the use of force and self-defense, which the Bush administration has developed since the fall of 2001. The court has also dealt with uh, the question of the use of force and the question of self-defense in an, in an advisory opinion. This advisory opinion is called the Wall Advisory Opinion. Uh, and it was produced by the court in 2004 and merits our attention in part because it illustrates the court's generally strict adherence to the Nicaragua president of 1986. This advisory opinion concerns Israel's construction of a wall between the West Bank and Israel, running partially along the 1949 Armistice Line, or the so-called Green Line. The wall does, however, diverge many uh, times from the Green Line so as to include on the Israeli side of the wall the Israeli settlements in the West Bank. The Israeli government decided to construct the wall 
arguing that it was necessary to prevent Palestinian terrorists from entering Israel and generally to prevent illegal Palestinian infiltration into Israel. In a, Decem in a December 2003 resolution, the General Assembly requested the court to give an advisory opinion on the legal consequences flowing from Israel's construction of the wall in the occupied Palestinian territory, including in and around East Jerusalem. The court began its full advisory opinion by concluding that it had jurisdiction to give this opinion and no reason compelled the court to use its discretionary power not to render an opinion. The court then made clear that the construction of the wall and its associated regime affected the inhabitants of the occupied Palestinian territory by contributing to demographic changes and by impeding their freedom of movement and their right to work, to health, to education, and to adequate standards of living. On this basis, the court concluded that the wall was at variance with certain provisions of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, the Fourth Geneva Convention, and Security Council resolutions. In addition, the court found that the construction of the wall and its, and its associated regime violate international law and that Israel cannot rely on the right of self-defense or a state of necessity to preclude the unlawfulness of such situations. In response to Israel's assertion that the wall is consistent with its right of self-defense under Article 41 of the UN Charter, the court briefly addressed the issue of self-defense in uh, the following single paragraph, and I quote the court's judgment. Article 51 of the Charter thus recognizes the existence, the existence of an inherent right of self-defense in the case of armed attack by one state against another state. However, Israel does not claim that the attack against it, the attacks against it are imputable to a foreign state. The court also notes that Israel exercises control in the occupied Palestinian territory and that, as Israel itself states, the threat which it, it regards as justifying the construction of the wall originates within and not outside that territory. The situation thus is thus different from that contemplated by Security Council resolutions, and therefore Israel could not in any event invoke those resolutions in support of its claim to be exercising a right of self-defense. Consequently, the court concludes that Article 51 of the Charter has no relevance in this case. End of the quote. In addition, the court's response to whether Israel could rely on a state of necessity to preclude the wrongfulness of the construction of the wall made reference to the, another case uh, and to the uh, International Law Commission draft articles on state responsibility. The state of necessity can only be invoked under certain strictly defined conditions which must be cumulatively satisfied, and the state concerned is not the sole judge of whether those conditions have been met. A state of necessity may be invoked only if it is the only way for the state to safeguard 
an essential interest against a grave and imminent peril. This finding led the court to the following sourcing conclusions, and I quote, in, the, in light of the material before it, the court is not convinced that the construction of the wall along the route chosen was the only means to safeguard the interest of Israel against the peril which it has invoked as justification for that construction. Thus the court interpreted Article 51 to mean that self-defense may only be exercised by a state against an armed attack by another state, and the armed attack must originate outside the territory of the state acting in self-defense. Also, the court held that while Israel has the right and indeed the duty to respond in order to protect the life of, of its citizens, it must do so with, within the bounds of applicable international law. Finally, the court concluded that the wall must be dismantled immediately and that Israel must make reparations for the damage caused by it. The court, in this advisory opinion, appears to have taken Nicaragua's interpretation of Article 51 to a further level by explicitly stating that armed attack against a state by non-state actors may not justify the state's use of force in self-defense. The advisory opinion thereby shows that the time has not come yet to recognize a right of self-defense against non-state actors not directed or controlled by another state. Now let us examine uh, the so-called Congo-Uganda case. This case, decided by the court in 2005, is significant for our purposes because it presented the court with the opportunity to reapprise its jurisdiction in Nicaragua, particularly concerning armed attacks by rebel groups. The Congo-Uganda case arose out of the prolonged armed conflict in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which has been on, had been ongoing since at least 1994. The conflict involved the armies of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, Zimbabwe, Namibia, Angola, Sudan, and Chad, as well as approximately 21 armed groups. According to estimates, approximately 4 million people have died because of this conflict, and approximately 50 million have been affected because of the ongoing hostilities. Despite the multifaceted uh, nature of this dispute, the court concerned itself only with a discrete set of bilateral issues. The court thereby remi remained faithful to its prior jurisdiction in which the court has not refused to examine a narrow legal dispute simply because it is a part of a much larger political question. In this case, the Democratic Republic of the Congo alleged that in 1998 and 1999, during the Congolese civil war, the Republic of Uganda committed acts of armed aggression on the territory of the Democratic Republic of the Congo in violation of Uganda's international legal obligations regarding the non-use of force. The court found that Uganda 
through the Uganda People's Defense Force engaged in military activities on the territory of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, occupied the Ituri region of the DRC, and provided military, logistic, economic, and financial support to irregular forces operating in the DRC's territory. The court found that the Ugandan army committed acts of killing, torture, and inhumane treatment of Congolese civilians. The Ugandan army also destroyed villages and civilian buildings, failed to distinguish between civilian and military targets, and to protect Congolese civilians during the fighting with other combatants trained also child soldiers and incited and failed to take measures to end ethnic conflict in the DRC. Also, as an occupying power, the Ugandan army failed to respect and ensure respect for human rights and humanitarian law in the Ituri district. Finally, the Uganda army exploited the vast natural resources of the Ituri district. The court, therefore, held that the Ugandan army's armed activities in the DRC violated the pro prohibition against the use of force, as well as human rights and humanitarian law. The Congo-Uganda case suggests close adherence by the International Court of Justice to the draft articles on state responsibility produced by the International Law Commission in 2001. In this case, the court effectively applied the principles of draft article 4 to determine that the conduct of the Ugandan army as a state organ was attributable to the government of Uganda. The court noted that the principle that the conduct of any organ of a state must be regarded, regarded as an act of that state is a well-established rule of international law, which is of customary uh, character. While the court does not refer explicitly to draft Article 4, but instead cites its advisory opinion on, on the difference relating to immunity from legal process of a special rapporteur of the Commission on Human Rights, the quoted language from the advisory opinion is in substance that of draft Article 4 of the International Law Commission. The court also held that in addition to the conduct of the Ugandan army as a whole, the conduct of individual Ugandan soldiers and officers is also attributable to the government of Uganda because of their military status and function in the DRC. Furthermore, the conduct of Ugandan army personnel is attributable to the government of Uganda regardless of whether such conduct exceeded their instructions or authority, because customary international law has established that a party to an armed conflict shall be responsible for all acts by persons forming part of its armed forces. This case merits our attention in part because it provides important uh, insight into the court's current uh, understanding of the scope of self-defense as an excuse which precludes the wrongfulness of state conduct. Uganda claimed that military assaults on the airports and towns of Beri, Burnia, and Watsa in August 1998 were justified by the consent of the DRC but on Uganda, sorry, were justified not 
by the consent of the DRC, but on Uganda's right of self-defense. To justify its invasion and occupation of a large portion of DRC's territory, Uganda asserted its right to self-defense against a Congolese rebel group, the so-called Allied Democratic Forces, which was operating against Uganda from the DRC. The court, however, found that the attacks were not attributable to the DRC because the attacks did not emanate from armed bands or irregulars sent by the DRC or on, beha or on behalf of the DRC. Consequently, the court held that the legal and factual circumstances for the exercise of a right of self-defense by Uganda against the DRC were not present, and, the court, and that the court need not examine whether and under what conditions contemporary international law provides for a right of self-defense against large-scale attacks by irregular forces. The court further held that it need not determine whether Uganda acted out of necessity or in a proportionate manner, though the court could not fail to observe, however, that the taking of airports and towns many hundreds of, of kilometers from Uganda's border would not seem to be proportionate to the series of transborder attacks it claimed had given rise to the right of self-defense, not to be necessary to that end. While the court in the Nicaragua case and the World Advisory Opinion implied that self-defense under Article 51 only exists in response to armed attack by a state instrumentality, the Congo-Uganda case makes this very implicit indeed. Let's examine now the last case related to these questions of the use of force and self-defense. And that is a very recent case decided by the court in uh, uh, 2007. Among the many noteworthy aspects of this large and complex uh, uh, case, um, one may want to focus on the relationship to the Nicaragua case as well as to the Yugoslavia, to the Yugoslavia Tribunal Tadic judgment of 1999. Nine. This Bosnia uh, versus Serbia case arose out of the war in Bosnia and Bosnia and Herzegovina following the breakup of the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia in the early 90s. The parties to this case, Bosnia and Herzegovina and Serbia and Montenegro, well, were all part of the territory of this former state. When Bosnia and Herzegovina declared its independence in October 91, this met with a protest from the Serbian community of Bosnia and Herzegovina, and soon thereafter, in January 92, the Republic of Spaska, which uh, uh, stands for the Republic of the Serb people, Serb people of Bosnia and Herzegovina, declared its independence. Though this entity never acquired international recognition as a state, it controlled a large amount of territory and had the support of large number of Bosnian Serbs. During the conflict that ensued in Bosnia and Herzegovina, the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, later to be called Serbia and Montenegro, and more recently only Serbia, made considerably military and financial support available 
to the Republic of Sparska. Massive killings, largely of Bosnian Muslims, took place throughout Bosnia and Herzegovina during the conflict. In addition, during the Srebrenica massacre of July 1995, Bosnian Serbs, Serb forces killed over 7,000 Bosnian Muslim men following the, the takeover of Srebrenica. The court ultimately found that Serbia neither committed genocide or conspired or incited the commission of genocide in violation of its obligations under the Genocide Convention. In addition, the court found that Serbia was not complicit in genocide. But the court did, however, find that Serbia violated its obligation under the Genocide Convention to prevent the genocide which occurred in Srebrenica in July 95. Moreover, Serbia violated its obligation to punish the commission of genocide through its failure to transfer Radko Mladic to the Yugoslavia Tribunal for prosecution for genocide and complicity in genocide. One notable aspect of the court's decision was, was its faithfulness to the Nicaragua case in light of the Yugoslavia Tribunal's disavowal of the effective control test in its Tadic judgment. In determining that the Srebrenica genocide could not be attributed to Serbia, the court approached the question of attribution by asking whether the Srebrenica massacre were, massacres were committed by persons who, though not having the status of a state organ, nevertheless acted on the state's instructions or under its direction or control. On this issue, the court rejected the, the Yugoslav, Yugoslavia Tribunal's use of an overall control test. The court held that attribution requires that the state exercise effective control in respect of each operation in which the alleged violation occurred, not generally in respect of the overall actions taken by the perpetrators. By contrast, the appeals chamber in the Tadic case, the appeals chamber of the ICTY, held that acts committed by Bosnian Serbs could give rise to the international responsibility of the state on the basis of the overall control test without any need to prove that each operation was under the effective control of the state. The court explained its rejection of the overall control test employed in Tadic by the ICTY by noting that the particular characteristics of genocide do not justify the court in departing from the criterion elaborated in the Nicaragua case. According to the court, the rules for attributing allegedly international wrongful conduct to a state do not vary with the nature of the wrongful act in question in the absence of a clearly expressed lex specialis. Consequently, genocide is attributable to a state if the acts were carried out on the instructions or directions of the state or under its effective control. The court further noted that that is the state that, that is the state of customary international law as reflected in the, in the International Law Commission's articles on state responsibility. The court then observed that when the Yugoslavia Tribunal addressed the, this issue of state responsibility, it was not indispensable for the exercise of its jurisdiction as the ICTY was not called upon 
in the Tadic case, nor in its general, nor is it in general called upon to rule on questions of state responsibility since its jurisdiction is criminal and extends over persons only and not to states. Moreover, the IC, the International Court of Justice, found that the overall control test in, is unsuitable because it stretches too far, almost to breaking point, the connection which must exist between the conduct of a state's organs and its international responsibility. Finally, while commentators will inevitably focus on these differences between the ICTY overall control test and the International Court of Justice effective control test, we should bear in mind that the two institutions still broadly agree that the state may exercise its right of self-defense only against armed attacks either committed by a state or by forces over which the state has a controlling influence. Thus, despite the differing interpretations uh, of uh, controlling influence by the ICTY and the International Court of Justice, the general contours of, the Nicaragua, of Nicaragua's restrictive understanding of self-defense remain highly influential today. In my concluding remarks, I will briefly note the general trend in the International Court of Justice jurisprudence on the topics of state responsibility and the use of force. While the Corfu Channel case included some very broad statements on state responsibility, the Nicaragua case set forth a somewhat narrow test of attribution of responsibility. In the Corfu Channel case, the court broadly required states not to knowingly allow the use of their territory for acts contrary to the rights of other states. The Nicaragua case, however, is remembered in, pact, in part for its effective control test in which attribution hinges on whether non-state entities acted under the direction or control of the state. Since the days of Nicaragua, the court's more recent jurisprudence has further narrowed the right of self-defense, especially with respect to non-state actors. Given the increasing prominence of non-state actors on the international stage, the court's recent jurisprudence give us much to consider. While international law can play an important role in reigning resort to force by states, non-state actors, such as terrorists, will continue to pose real challenges for the international legal system. Perhaps these new threats to international peace and security call for us all to think creatively about international legal solutions to these challenges. Thank you very much.